We return today to our series, Things That Make You Go, Hmm, Sermon, and I want the slide to come up, thank you. Today we're looking at two difficult to understand sayings of Jesus, two because they both involve mountains ending up in the sea. Both are not the finest moments for Jesus' disciples, and until the disciples learnt from these experiences, the growth of their life and ministry was going to be restricted. Today, we're going to profit from their failure and have a better approach to life and ministry, I hope. So I want to look at two attitudes which stop St Mark's growing. The first one is our reliance on our own power, and secondly, our lack of expectation of God's power. So firstly, thinking about our reliance on our own power. Being a new parent is very challenging. The baby is reliant on her parents, particularly her mother, for everything. She's absolutely helpless and parents look forward to the child growing, firstly in sleeping the night through and then in self-reliance. Caring parenting, of course, includes teaching our children to develop independence. And while people may differ in those early years over the timing of toileting and weaning, All parents have the goal that the child will toilet themselves, feed themselves, dress themselves, and it doesn't stop there as you help your child to be able to read, to spell, to do mathematics, maybe to cook or ride a bike, and then one day helping them learn to drive. It troubled me recently that my children, somehow it came up, mum and dad helping us to drive, and I thought, I never knew they realised that I don't enjoy it very much, I find it stressful, but I never knew. Imogen said, and Dad, you notice how he holds the strap up the side the whole time? I never knew they saw that. I thought I was doing that subtly. Hmm. We've only got one more and we're through. A parent's goal is for a child that he or she becomes a self-reliant adult. And at the end, other end of life, of course, people grieve when failing bodies cause them to resume having greater dependence on people. So many fear losing their independence, as we put it. When it comes to Christian life and ministry, however, relying on ourselves is a recipe for defeat. God wants us to be a dependent child, and that's exactly what the disciples discovered in Matthew 17. The scene opens with Jesus and three of his disciples off on the mountain where you'll recall Peter, James and John glimpsed Jesus' glory when he was transfigured. So the other nine disciples are left to do their usual work of healing and teaching, We imagine all's going well until they encounter this young boy possessed by a particularly strong demon. The problem's explained by the boy's father, if you've got chapter 17 open, when Jesus rejoins the nine in verse 16, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And Jesus, of course, has no difficulty with the demon. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Now, that shouldn't have been any surprise for the disciples. They've already identified Jesus as the Messiah or Christ, who, as God's king, brings all salvation and blessing to his people in the exercise of his power. 
But the surprise for the disciples is that they couldn't perform the exorcism themselves. So verse 19, in private, they come to Jesus. Why couldn't we drive it out? And now we come to our things that make you go, hmm, verse, at verse 20. Jesus replies, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus diagnoses at this point their self-reliance to be the problem. Now, don't be confused by the English words here. That they have so little faith and yet could have faith as small as a mustard seed, which is really, really small, it actually means the problem isn't with the quantity of their faith, which you might sort of think when you hear little faith. No, it's the quality of their faith. And the quality of their faith is small. It's poor. The disciples had lots of faith in themselves, in their ability to do the ecosystem. Why couldn't we? do it, but so little faith in their Heavenly Father. The disciples had been commissioned back in chapter 10 by Jesus to do the work of teaching, healing, exorcisms. And so now, they've, and they've had many successes since then, and so they're surprised by their failure. The problem, I reckon, is that success has gone to their heads. They're treating the authority Jesus gave them like a gift of magic power that works independently of God. Yet, of course, every success they've had is because of the power of God at work through their ministry. Faith is trust, dependence, or belief in the power and authority of God. It's not reliance on our own strength. It's reliance on God. The power of faith isn't in ourself, it lies in what we have our faith in. So Jesus can make the startling assertion there in verse 20 that with faith as small as a mustard seed, you could move this mountain. When I hear that, my brain goes to the image of the powerful magician Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings facing up to the Balrog demon. Yet, as soon as I do that, I show that I haven't got the point that Jesus is making. I've completely misunderstood Jesus here because it's not like it's the Christian who holds the power. It's, it's, the, it's God. It's the God that we need to put a mustard seed of faith in. We don't exercise the power by saying magic words or issuing authoritatively sounding commands. We exercise the power by faith. And so physically moving the mountain is, is not really the point. It's not really going to help anyone to move a mountain. When the Jews talked about moving mountains, it was a saying in which the mountain represented something really difficult. It's, we still use the phrase in our culture, don't we? You know, when someone successfully organised a meeting involving multiple people with busy schedules, they'll say, I had to move mountains to get this organised. When you hear that, you, you don't imagine that they've hired earth-moving equipment. You, you've got the sense, haven't you, that it's talking about a big problem, a big obstacle. Here is a rebuke to the disciples' presumptive self-reliance and lack of faith in God. So it's striking at the end of verse 20, though, when Jesus makes the massive assertion, 
nothing will be impossible for you. And again, you're sort of driven to think it's you who have the power. But again, they shouldn't drop back into hero delusions here. It's only as they carry out their ministry while relying on God's power that they'll see the apparently impossible achieved. In the area of ministry the disciples had been given, the healing, the teaching, the exorcisms, nothing was going to be impossible if they exercised faith in God, the God, who is powerful over all. But the disciples up to this point, at this point, failed because they were self-reliant when they needed to be God-reliant. Their faith in themselves was large, but in God it was so small that it was non-existent. So what's the implication of all this for us? Well, don't be self-reliant as you approach Christian living and ministry. And that's a challenge because in every other area of life, we're trained to strive to be self-reliant, to stand on our own two feet. And if we're gifted in any particular area, it's really easy to... Uh, do that and to fall into that. And so for me, I find leading services a lot easier than preaching sermons. And so sometimes I catch myself, you know, I prepare the service and we do it and I think, I haven't prayed about this. I haven't asked God to use what we're doing here in everyone's hearts and minds. It's a self-reliance that isn't good. How do we judge if we're relying on ourselves in Christian living and ministry. I reckon one test is our prayerfulness because prayer is an expression of our faith in God because by its very nature, you're relying on God, you're asking God to be at work in a situation. So I want now to look at our church at prayer. Are we self-reliant church or a God-reliant church? Well, in our own words, in the words of our church vision, we are prayerful. That's one of the three pillars of the church vision, to be a prayerful church. But what of our action? Well, we always commit to significant wide-ranging prayer in our Sunday services. And thank you to everyone who leads on our prayer rosters. We've got the prayer prompt studies at the beginning of each term in most of the growth groups And the growth groups are places of serious prayer. The Christian care team receives a weekly prayer list from Marg Ellis, and at present we're praying for 40 people. It was encouraging that at the launch of our 2 by 2 2020 prayer commitment in February that many of you committed to pray at least twice weekly for two Christians to grow and two non-Christians to encounter and believe in Jesus. So, How have you been keeping to that? I have, but it's taken effort and connecting it with something I do every morning. If you haven't kept it up, well, it's not too late. We've still got three and a half months left in the year. Uh, Why not pull out the commitment card and start again? This month, we had only five people and two puppets at the first Saturday prayer meeting. Now, I, don't, I know that doesn't mean others don't pray at other times, but I do wonder if it says something about the general prayer health of St Mark's. 
One of the things that definitely stops our church growing is our self-reliance. Much of what we do is encouraging, as you can see, but we need more God-reliance that is expressed through consistent, prayerful reliance, dependence on our powerful God. For in fresh water, many are comfortable and don't see the relevance of Jesus or his church for their lives. Our sharing the gospel seems like weak words to those hard, nice hearts. So if we want to see St Mark's grow, we're fools to rely on our power, on our strength. Let's more powerfully rely on God's power to bless our lives and ministry. And to that end, I want to announce a little initiative. It's a token in so many ways, but it's toward helping us be a prayerful church and to think about being a prayerful church. In 10 days, we'll have our church anniversary, Wednesday, September 23rd. So Mark's will be 109 years old on that day. Let us observe that day by specially committing ourselves to rely on God in prayer at a prayer meeting. And to make it easy, I've planned to run a prayer meeting at nearly every hour of the day between 7am and 9.30pm. I'm going to be at each one. It's going to be up the back. And I hope you'll come to just one additional gathering to your normal church involvement. I'm envisaging short 30-minute prayer times in person. And Zoomers, you're not left out. We'll be Zooming as well. You can Zoom in also. The times are listed in this week's e-news if you haven't already looked at it. And, of course, you'll get reminded next week. Time for the next slide because one of the key moments in golfer Adam Scott's 2013 US Masters victory was the last playoff hole, of course, because that's where he won. But if he took two shots to sink his putt, he and his Chilean opponent would have to move to a third playoff hole. If he sunk the putt with one shot, then the famous... No, go back, not yet. Then the famous (laughs) Victor's green jacket would be his. In sizing up the part, Adam calculated that it was what he described as one cup. And that was going to affect how hard and where he directed the ball. As was his habit, he ran this observation past his caddy, Steve Williams. I see it a cup right to left, Scott, Adam Scott said. Steve said, Scotty, it's two cups right to left, which is a big difference at their level. Adam was shocked and said, have you seen a putt like this done before? And he said, Scotty, it breaks a lot. It is two cups right to left. And Adam said, okay, it's two cups right to left. And here's how Adam Scott describes what happened next. I hit the putt and maybe with a little of adrenaline, I hit it a bit firmer than I normally would, but he was dead set right on. You can put the other slide up now. It was two cups because it went in the left side of the hole. And the guy looking very happy behind Adam Scott is uh, Steve Williams. He's New Zealand caddy, former caddy of Tiger Woods. Adam Scott then became, and last slide, the first and only Australian winner of the US Masters. So he got to wear the famous fabled green jacket. Don't you reckon it was a smart move of Adam Scott not to be self-reliant that day? 
How foolish it is when we are self-reliant in the Christian life and ministry before, of course, God is much more powerful and wise than a golf caddy. Reliance on our own power is, and we can leave them now, reliance on our own power is the first attitude that will stop some marks growing. The second attitude I want to look at with you that will stop some marks growing is our lack of expectation of the power of the God we pray to. And underestimating someone can be a fatal mistake. So next slide. In the Orphan X series of books, Evan Smoke's whole life, he's a a trained assassin basically, his whole life depends on him blending in, looking very average. And so for fans like me, there is the thrill of anticipation when a few local hoodlums take offence to Evan. Evan tries to give them the chance to walk away, which only succeeds in escalating their testosterone fueled egos. I'm reading and I'm, in, I'm anticipating the inevitable altercation and thinking, you have underestimated him. It takes him less than 10 seconds to have all three crumpled on the ground around him because they underestimated the power of Evan's smoke. Well, the disciples are guilty of underestimating the power of Jesus in the story of of the fig tree in chapter 21. But at this point, gardeners among us, I know you're thinking very uncomfortably at this point. Before your faith in Jesus takes a hit because of of his meanness to fig trees, let me explain. This whole incident is part of a bigger symbolism of judgment to come on Israel. Here in Matthew, only the day before, Jesus was involved in the dramatic cleansing of the temple when the house, the house of prayer turned den of robbers by the greedy priests. And straight after this fig tree story, Matthew recounts how the Jewish leadership questioned Jesus and refused to accept him as the obvious Christ of God that he really is. So Jesus isn't as fickle as it looks when in chapter 21, verse 18, he was hungry and verse 19, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. The, The point about fig trees is that the leaves are generally an advertisement, you know, like the flashing lights of the brothel I walked past in charred road on a walk on Friday night. I didn't know what it was and then I guessed. Um, It's an advertisement, you know, and and here the fig tree leaves are saying there are figs. However, this tree makes a show of bearing fruit when it doesn't have any. And it's like Israel. The leaders make a show of piety, but they are hypocrites who do not bear the fruit people in their position should. And the same could be said about many in Israel. Uh, you saw it in the reading that Emma brought, that first reading from Micah. That's just a, that's a good example in introducing a section on the sin found in Israelite society. You see verse 1, What misery is mine, I am like the one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. This is Israel. And so for us as we look in chapter 21, the way the stories 
nestled between the cleansing of the temple and the demonstration of the stubborn hard-heartedness of the leadership, it isn't hard to see that the fig tree is a symbol of Israel and its cursing, of the judgment Israel is under for rejecting her king. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. Uh, We've got the whole New Testament and the Holy Spirit So we tried not to be too hard on the disciples. I reckon that went right over their heads. They missed the symbolism. But at least they don't miss this display of power. When the disciples saw the withered tree, verse 20, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? The disciples noticed the power of Jesus' words. But why are they surprised? Where were they when Jesus, with a few words, calmed the wind and the waves? Where were they? They were in the boat right there with Jesus. Where were they when Jesus used the mystery box of five loaves and two fishes and created a master chef meal for 5,000 men beside women and children? Where were they? They were right there on the grass handing out the food. And where were they when Jesus repeated that feast for 4,000 men besides women and children? Again, right there on the grass, actually picking up seven basketfuls of leftovers after everyone had eaten and been satisfied. The disciples of all people shouldn't be surprised by Jesus' display of power with the fig tree. They of all people should be clear that Jesus is the Christ, the powerful one, capable of exercising all of God's power. Yet they are surprised. They really do need to grow in their expectation of God's power to be at work in their ministry. And thankfully, after Jesus' death and resurrection, in the book of Acts, we see that they have grown in that way, which is a big help for them in their ministry there in the first century. But let's look here in Matthew at how Jesus explains to them their need to grow. He says something that we also need to take on board for our life and ministry, and it's our next things that make you go, hmm, verse, verse 21. Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it'll be done. Jesus makes some really strong promises here, doesn't he? First, if you have faith and do not doubt, you can wither a fig tree and move a mountain into the sea. Jesus is promising the disciples the same power that he exercises on the condition that they have the sort of faith in God we saw them challenged about in chapter 17. It's a a faith in God, a a reliance on God and his power to to do the seemingly impossible, to move those mountain obstacles in life and ministry. The similar promise in verse 22 seems so broad that it's troubling, Matthew 21, 22, if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. That, that's troubling because we don't always receive whatever we ask for in prayer. So what's Jesus saying? Is he saying if you pray for something and it doesn't happen, then that's proof that you didn't really have faith, didn't really believe? That's how some people have cruelly applied this verse to Christians who, for example, pray for healing of a medical complaint and and don't receive what they ask for. That cannot be what verse 
22 means. From verse 17, we've from chapter 17, we've already seen that it's not the amount of faith that's decisive. It's that we're relying on our Heavenly Father that's crucial. But He's our Heavenly Father. We're in a relationship with Him. He isn't a genie. So nowhere in the Bible are we ever taught to pray as if our words are magic spells which control God. Our wise, loving, powerful God knows exactly what his people need and any of our prayers always carry a subtitle, according to your will. And Sometimes the answers aren't exactly what we asked, but they're the best answer. Having faith leaves room for God's will to override ours, which is hard sometimes. If you believe and pray, you're expressing trust in God's wisdom and will. You're asking God to do what is best, and sometimes you can't see how that is best, but you'll receive what you ask. And that's encouraging for our life and ministry. God is so powerful that... As we've remembered over recent weeks, he raised Jesus Christ to live again after he was well and truly dead. That is the incomparably great power for us who believe. These words of Jesus encourage us to pray and ask God to do big things. Don't limit and know that he can because he's the big God who with the words of command made the world. And with a will raised his son to life. This passage is challenging if you've ever thought God incapable of doing something through you. Like the disciples, do we underestimate Jesus' power when it comes to the ministry we have? I mean, we do pray for God to open hearts and minds in fresh water. We do pray for more people to... um, come to our ministries. We do pray for opportunities to share our faith. We do pray for people to turn and believe in Jesus as our Lord, our family and our friends. But do we underestimate or doubt God's power to fulfil those prayers? As we saw at the start of this series, Christ has promised to build his church. So let's expect him to keep that promise and expect to have opportunities to share our faith. And if you expect to have an opportunity to share your faith, since you've asked God for it, how's that going to affect your behaviour? Well, I would have thought it's going to help us to be prepared with just a couple of sentences to explain why we're a Christian, should we be asked. And you might plan to do some hospitality with the non-church friends you've been praying for and see what happens. You've been praying for it. God may well give you a chance to share something. Or you might ask that a friend or family member you've been praying for, you might ask them to come along to church and you've been praying for them, so why don't you ask? Underestimating someone is a dumb thing to do when it makes you miss out on what they might have contributed. So in professional sport, fans love contributing to a discussion on who was the best player that such and such a club let get away. Every major National Rugby League club, for example, has someone they let go while they were still young and undeveloped. My favourite, next slide, is Jonathan Thurston. And if you can see Hutt well enough on the left-hand side, 
this too small, too skinny, defence not good enough player was uh, rejected by Canterbury Bulldogs and also by Melbourne. They say three times by Melbourne when he trialled. Of course, he went on to be on the right-hand side one of the Cowboys, Queensland and Australia's greatest. Now, Manly supporters, I'm sorry. Next slide. Jared Warira Hargraves is the player for you. Of course, Rooster supporters, thank you for your underestimation of Jared's power. Don't underestimate the power of God to achieve his goals. Pray and expect God will act through you. We've so many good reasons to confidently rely on our powerful God to be at work in our life and ministry. So let's pray for him to powerfully work through us and then act, expecting him to display that power for his glory.